Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the P-Box podcast. I'm Hannah, and today I'm joined by Dr. Natasha Pritchard, who is a Ranscog trainee doing a PhD part-time at the Mercy Hospital for Women in Melbourne. Thanks so much for coming in today, Tash. Um, so today we're going to be talking about ectopic pregnancies, and I know that as a medical student it was something that um, came up quite a lot on um, multiple choice exams, like all sort of 18-year-old women coming in with abdominal pain, the first thing that you think of is ectopic pregnancies. Um, so I thought that in line with that we might start with a bit of a clinical vignette. Um, so today we've got Alice. Up until now she hasn't had any pregnancies. She's a 28-year-old woman and she presents to the ED with abdominal pain and pervaginal bleeding or PV bleeding in the context of what she reports is a light period. She usually gets irregular periods and she thinks that her last normal menstrual period was about six to eight weeks ago. Um, she tells you that she's sexually active with a few partners. She hasn't had any recent STI checks um, and she sometimes uses contraception. She doesn't have any really significant past medical history or surgical history. So Tash, is this the way that an ectopic pregnancy typically presents? So ectopic pregnancies can present in many different ways. Essentially, all women who present to the emergency department with abdominal pain who are of reproductive age have to have an ectopic pregnancy until proven otherwise. So the easiest way to exclude an ectopic pregnancy, obviously, is to prove that the woman is not pregnant. Urinary pregnancy tests are sensitive enough that unless the woman has a very strong suspicion she is pregnant, can essentially be used as an effective screening tool to make sure that she isn't. If um, she is found to be pregnant, common clinical presentations often include abdominal pain um, with or without vaginal bleeding. This is often light, but it can sometimes be reasonably heavy, so the amount isn't really a guide as to whether or not it's an ectopic pregnancy or not. It's important to keep in mind that many women can be completely asymptomatic and that it can be identified as part of an early pregnancy workup with hormonal profiles or ultrasounds. Signs of hemodynamic compromise are rare and usually mean a rupture and should always be treated as an emergency. It's important to know risk factors for ectopic pregnancy because they increase the likelihood that a woman has one. However, there are many women that don't have any risk factors that end up having an ectopic pregnancy, so it's important that you always keep a high index of suspicion. Previous ectopic pregnancy is the biggest risk factor for a future ectopic pregnancy with about 1 in 10 women having a recurrence. Most risk factors are anything that might have caused damage to the fallopian tubes in the woman. This includes a history of pelvic inflammatory disease with more episodes, meaning a higher likelihood of having an ectopic pregnancy, in particular if the woman was known to have had chlamydia in the past. Previous tubal surgery, previous ruptured appendixes or pelvic abscesses that could cause intrauterine adhesions are also risk factors. Extremes of age, so the very old and the very young, are more likely to get an ectopic pregnancy, as are those women who have had a pregnancy through IVF or assisted reproductive technology. Conceiving with an intrauterine device or on progesterone contraceptives increase the chance of you getting an ectopic pregnancy, but it's important to remember that using contraceptives are not risk factors for ectopics, as you are less likely to get pregnant overall. Okay. So we have taken a history from Alice and we've gone through all of our risk factors and she's one of those women who sounds as though she's got an ectopic even though she doesn't have any risk factors like what you mentioned before like history of pelvic inflammatory disease and she's not um, using um, an IUD or anything. So we go to an examination. She's pretty well looking. She's afebrile. Um, her, she's a bit tachycardic, 110 beats per minute, but she is normotensive and there's no postural drop. 
When you do an abdominal exam, she's got a little bit of guarding in the lower quadrant, but she's not peritonitic and her pain is pretty generalized. So on vaginal exam, there's a small amount of blood in the vagina with some tenderness in the left agnexa on bimanual examination. So it's always important to check vitals. But Tash, why is it particularly critical in women with a suspected ectopic pregnancy? Unlike your general medical patients, young women who are otherwise healthy compensate really well for blood loss and can lose well over a litre before they even begin to have changes in their vital signs. By the time that a young, healthy woman is exhibiting changes in her vital signs, it often means that she's actually becoming critically unwell. Blood pressure can be one of the later changes in a young, healthy woman, and so it's important to look at all of her vital signs, in particular her heart rate, to see if she's tachycardic. Even a trend in increasing heart rate should prompt consideration that she could be having active bleeding. If she is showing signs of hemodynamic instability, she's very compromised and it's an absolute emergency that will often require theatre. Okay, so if we go back to some of the investigations that we can do to um, sort of screen for an ectopic pregnancy, at the bedside, one of the first things we can do is a pregnancy test. And we find that in Alice, she does have a a positive pregnancy test or urine HCG. So my understanding, Tash, is that a urine pregnancy test is a good screen, but it doesn't actually tell us what the HCG levels are. So you're you're either sort of positive or negative. And so then you need to perform a serum beta HCG. And in the context of a normal intrauterine pregnancy, you won't be able to see the pregnancy on a transvaginal ultrasound until the HCG level is 1500. And so if the serum beta HCG comes back and it's not yet 1500, you probably won't be able to see anything um, in the uterus and you need to continue to check the beta HCG every 48 hours until it gets to over this point, unless the patient has significant abdominal pain. So if you think that the woman has an ectopic pregnancy, then it's less important what the beta HCG is and you can consider an ultrasound a bit earlier. Um, So in a healthy uterine pregnancy, the HCG will double every 72 hours. So if it's slowly rising or plateauing, then you start to wonder about the possibility of an ectopic um, that will abort. And if the HCG is decreasing, um, then you're wondering about a spontaneous abortion or a spontaneously resolving ectopic. So there are also a few other investigations to consider. So we're talking a bit before about hemodynamic stability. So we're wondering about whether there's any bleeding. So an FBE, particularly the HB, is really important to establish the degree of blood loss. And if there's significant bleeding, you can also consider a group and hold. If it's not known already, the blood type is really important, a blood type and screen. And we're specifically interested in knowing whether the woman is rhesus negative. And then if she is, we need to um, administer anti-D. So there are a few other additional tests that we can consider. So a UEC, like urea electrolytes and creatinine, um, to get an idea of the underlying renal function, and also LFTs, like liver function tests, to get an, an idea of her liver function, which can help to preempt decisions regarding the management. But we'll chat a bit more about this um, in a bit. So I think most importantly, Tash, kind of what you were talking about before is to um, have a transvaginal ultrasound to determine the location of the pregnancy. Could you tell me a bit more about what sort of things we're looking for in the ultrasound? So over 90% of ectopic pregnancies are located in the fallopian tubes. There are occasionally rare additional sites that can include the cornua, which is the thick muscular area where the tubes join the uterus, the cervix, caesarean section scars, or even in the abdomen. In some of these cases, they can get quite advanced, so it can be harder to treat than usual ectopic pregnancies, which often quickly outgrow their tubal source 
and so present earlier with pain. Very rarely you can get a heterotopic pregnancy, which is where there's an intrauterine and an ectopic pregnancy at the same time. Always be careful when seeing an ultrasound report that just mentions a gestational sac with nothing else. There are some differences between a pseudosac and a gestational sac, but make sure it was a good quality ultrasound before trusting that the gestational sac is real. Free fluid in the pouch of Douglas can indicate that the woman has been bleeding, especially if it's a large amount. In some cases, on ultrasound, an obvious pregnancy with a heartbeat can be seen, but in many cases, just some sort of adnexal mass is described. If you can't see an ectopic pregnancy, don't assume there isn't one, as the only way to properly exclude an ectopic pregnancy is to see an intrauterine pregnancy. If you don't see a mass on ultrasound, but clinically you're suspicious of an ectopic pregnancy, it's considered to be a pregnancy of unknown location until you can prove that it's inside the uterus. Okay. And so if we don't do anything about this ectopic, the natural history kind of follows one of three parts. So the first one is that you'll, the ectopic will rupture. The second is that there'll be a tubal abortion, which is where the products of conception are expelled through the fimbria. They can then be resorbed or re-implanted into the abdomen or ovary, and sometimes you need surgical intervention in the case of a tubal abortion. And then the third um, pathway of the natural history of ectopics is spontaneous resolution. So in line with this, treatment can be surgical, medical, or expectant. And Tash, can you take us through each of these? So surgical management is obviously the most effective definitive management. This is most appropriate in women who are hemodynamically unstable or who really need to have urgent access to treatment. In women who have a beta-HCG of over 5,000 or the mass is greater than 3.5 centimetres, if there's a heartbeat or if there's a contraindication to methotrexate, these would all be reasons that you do surgery. Lack of access to quick treatment, so women who live far away in the country, or women who are poorly compliant with um, returning back for their blood tests are also people who would be ideal surgical candidates. The surgical approaches are abdominal or laparoscopic. Usually we would try to do laparoscopic approaches because it's minimally invasive, but you would use an abdominal approach if the woman is hemodynamically unstable and in urgent need of very quick treatment. When you open the abdomen, you either do one of two things, salpingectomy, which is removal of the entire tube, or salpingotomy, which is removal of just the ectopic pregnancy and the portion of the tube that it's in. Usually we use salpingectomy as the first line treatment, as often there's underlying tubal damage, which is the reason the woman had the ectopic pregnancy. And so if you leave the tube, you have an approximately 10% chance of recurrence. Whereas taking the tube out doesn't substantially impact the woman's fertility. However, if there's already been damage to the other tube, you might want to consider a salpingotomy, so that enables the woman to retain the possibility of conceiving naturally. As with no tubes, the only option is IVF. Medical management at this stage in Australia involves methotrexate. This can have up to a 90% success rate in the absence of any contraindications with a low starting beta-HCG. In these cases, you would have to monitor the beta-HCG all the way to zero. Women who would be appropriate for medical management include those who have a beta-HCG of less than 5,000 or a mass that's smaller than 3.5 centimetres with no heartbeat, who are compliant and able to be followed up. 
This should not be used unless the diagnosis is really clear and a viable intrauterine pregnancy has been excluded because as a folate antagonist, methotrexate can cause harm to an ongoing pregnancy. Methotrexate is a single weight-based dose that's given to the woman on what's considered day one with her bloods tested on day four and day seven. If between day four and day seven, there's been a 15% drop in her beta-HCG, methotrexate is considered to have been a success. It's really important to make sure that the woman uses contraception for three months because as a folate antagonist, it can cause problems with a, a subsequent early pregnancy, so it needs to be completely out of the system. This means that women who really want to get pregnant again very soon may not be ideal candidates for methotrexate. Expectant management is the third option, which is not as commonly used in Australia. Women who are appropriate to have expectant management include those who have a beta-HCG of less than 1500 to start with, which should already be decreasing. They obviously need to be clinically stable, compliant, able to be followed up, and happy to track their beta-HCG to zero. So because Alice is tachycardic, we're gonna rush her for an immediate transvaginal ultrasound. And on the ultrasound, we can see a left-sided adnexal mass and some free fluid in the pouch of Douglas. And because of this, because of her tachycardia and the free fluid um, in the pouch of Douglas, we're worried that she's got a ruptured ectopic. So she's rushed to theater. Um, and she has a salpingectomy, which is successful, and she recovers well afterwards. Does that sound like a reasonable approach to you, Tash? Yes, absolutely. Anyone who's at all hemodynamically unstable, as Alice is indicating, given she's got free fluid and a tachycardia, should be managed surgically, and it's not appropriate to manage them medically or with expected management. Okay, and so she recovers well. And we know that she's at high risk of developing an ectopic pregnancy again in the future, but is there anything else she needs to worry about or know about? Just making sure that she's on appropriate contraception to reduce the chance of her getting pregnant at all, as well as an early pregnancy ultrasound the next time that she knows that she is pregnant to see if we can exclude an ectopic pregnancy early. So we're talking about appropriate contraception for Alice in the future. Is something like an IUD okay for her to have? Absolutely. The most important thing in preventing ectopic pregnancy is preventing an unwanted pregnancy in the first place. An IUD is one of the most effective forms of contraception and so is perfect for someone who's at high risk of an ectopic pregnancy. It doesn't put you at increased risk of having an ectopic pregnancy overall, but it's important to remember if a woman does get accidentally pregnant with an IUD, implanon or other progesterone containing contraceptive, then they could be at increased risk of having an ectopic pregnancy, but that overall using an IUD is protective against ectopics. Cool, all right. So in summary, because of the potentially life-threatening outcomes associated with a ruptured ectopic, ectopic pregnancy should always be suspected in sexually active women presenting with abdominal pain. Once serum HCG reaches 1500, transvaginal ultrasound should be able to visualize the, gestation, the gestational sac but the interesting, well, the important caveat, I guess, is that the 1500 number is to do with um, intrauterine pregnancy. Um, and if a woman presents with um, abdominal pain, it's not so important for the beta-HCG to have reached a particular number. So if you do have an ectopic pregnancy, it will usually be in the fallopian tubes. Management is either conservative, medical with methotrexate, or surgical. And the decision is guided by HCG level, including the trend, 
hemodynamic stability of the woman, the size of the pregnancy, and if there's a fetal heartbeat. So that's it from us today. Thank you so much for coming in, Tash. I feel like I've learned a lot, and I hope everyone else listening has too. Thanks very much. So thanks for listening, and tune in next time.